Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Charlie Lineweaver. He's an associate professor at the Australian National University, and we're going to talk about his work. So, Charlie, thanks for coming. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, if you would tell me, it looks like your research interests are varied. So tell me about uh, what you're working on and what's of particular interest to you currently. Right. So my interests are varied. I I did my PhD at uh, Berkeley in 1995, and that was on cosmology. And we discovered the fluctuations in the microwave background. And my PhD supervisor, George Smoot, got the Nobel Prize for the work we did. And so so I was trained as a cosmologist. Uh, George deserved the Nobel Prize, (laughs) and he also got it with John Mather. So I was trained as a cosmologist. uh, But before that, I guess I had been going to universities for a long time. So I've uh, lived in Germany. I did my first physics in Germany, but I also studied history and African history and Egyptian history in uh, Nigeria and in Egypt. So I've been to 84 countries and I guess I was trying to become a man of the world. And then I figured out that physics was something that made you a man of the world. So my research now, I, I, I'm an astrobiologist, but sometimes I call myself a cosmobiologist because as I mentioned, I was trained in cosmology and I know more cosmology than the biologists around me and more uh, cosmology than more cosmology than the biologists and more biology than the cosmologists. So, and so that, so I'm a cosmobiologist. So what I do, what does that mean? Sometimes people ask, I said, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm looking for life elsewhere. I'm looking for little green men. And um, is there any life that's been observed outside of earth that didn't get there by, you know, uh, hitching a oh, ride I on see. a spacecraft to get there? So far, not not that we know of, except it depends on what you mean by life. If you mean the conventional definition of life, uh, no. So, so we haven't found any little green men or we haven't found bacteria or viruses. There has been a couple of claims, but uh, I'm very skeptical about these claims. And uh, so if somebody says, have we already detected extraterrestrial life? I would say no. On the other hand, if you really want to get into it, I don't think we know what life is. And so I've been a proponent for uh, trying to convince people that we do not know what life is. And so uh, under one definition of life, a very, very broad one, you could say, well, convection cells or fires are, or maybe stars are life forms in the sense that they have a metabolism in the sense that they are getting free energy and producing entropy. And that's what it's called the uh, 
Prigogin is a is also a Nobel Prize winning chemist. He said that uh, he called these things far from equilibrium dissipative systems. So they're out of equilibrium, like a hurricane, for example. A hurricane is out of equilibrium. It's got these gigantic organized structure, and what it is doing is producing entropy. It's dissipating the free energy that's available in the environment and getting rid of it. And that's what people are doing. That's what all life forms are doing. But that's also what stars and hurricanes and convection cells are doing. Very few biologists accept this very broad definition because they say, well, where's the information? You need some DNA in there to pass it on. But anyway, we can get into that. I can talk about that for a long time if you'd like, but uh, maybe not. (laughs) Well, one, one quick question, though. I mean, within any living organism, though, there's a, a seemingly temporary reversal, you know, with energy input of, what is it, the second law of thermodynamics, and entropy always increases. I mean, since the yeah, organization yes. structure, living things seem to perpetuate that for a period of time. Yes, exactly like convection cells and hurricanes and stars. They are organized structures that they wouldn't be organized in it if we were just talking about statistics. They have gigantic flows going around and around in a circle, for example, or convection cells are very organized flows. That type of organization of velocities, for example, in the sun in convection cells is something that's so far from equilibrium that uh, it's just very far from equilibrium. It, uh, as you said, it's uh, organized and it's in low entropy structure just like what you consider to be normal life. Okay, I got you. So I guess you could say a convective cell is like, a, I guess, a short-lived life form in a way. Or no, a hurricane no, they live, no, they live for a long time. For example, the, uh, the, the great spot, the red spot on Jupiter, for example, has been around longer than you and I have been around. And so oh. it's, it's definitely not a short-lived thing. For example, a star can also be considered such a structure, very well organized, and it's going to live, sun, for example, 10 billion years, you and I, for some very small fraction of a billion years. So it's long, short-lived is not uh, yeah, an appropriate way to describe them. Well, I guess I was thinking, yeah, I, I confounded it with a hurricane, which, you know, I guess you could right. say is quote-unquote short-lived. Right. Well, some hurricanes live are very short. I mean, I guess the average hurricane is, uh, what, what does it last, about a month or so? Well, I don't know. I just, you know, I wouldn't expect it to last and last and last. But I, I see what you mean. You know, well, these these objects, they're similar to life, I guess, in that for a time they... They aggregate material and they, they have all these complex manifestations, but they're also dissipating along the way. And at some point, they they cease to be. So the point <laughs> is, that the, usually you, you're pushing back on the idea of, of structure and dissipation. Uh, usually that's not where the pushback comes. The pushback from biologists on this overly broad uh, concept of life is on the information content. And that is that you and I and life on this, on our planet, are usually associated with having DNA and therefore coded information inside the cells. That's certainly something that d- uh, hurricanes and stars do not have. But uh, in defense of this model, though, I would then say, well, wait a minute, does the information need to be on the inside of this organism you're talking about? Couldn't it be on the outside? And stars, for example, when they go boom, they create heavy elements, which then change the formation of subsequent generations of stars. And so there, the information is in the abundances of the elements. But I, I could go on this ra- down this rabbit hole for quite a long time, and but uh, maybe you wouldn't want to. I just wanted to, I, I guess the probably the easiest way to convince normal people that we don't know what life is, is that the most abundant organisms on this planet are viruses. And if you ask biologists, go ask a biologist tomorrow, are, are viruses alive? And I've done this again and again, and I've surveyed the entire world on this question. Oh, and I, used to, I used to say that biologists, half of them say it's alive and half of them don't. That's the, the, the zeroth order uh, result of the survey. The first order result of the survey is about, ha- about a quarter of the biologists say, yes, they are alive. About a quarter say, no, they're not alive. And a quarter say, I don't know. And then the last quarter say that question doesn't make sense. And I'm with the the last quarter there. I, I've uh, having asked this question many times and heard many answers. I'm with the last quarter, and that is, if you don't know what life is, you can't ask is something alive. No, but how, how, you, you can formulate that or postulate if life does exist outside of Earth, what might it look like? What form it might take? You know, I mean. It, if you could either assume it's going to be so alien as to be unrecognizable or similar enough to be recognizable, I guess. Before we continue, 
I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Well, my point is that we already have life on Earth that is unrecognizable as life in the form of the most abundant organisms, which are viruses. Right, but they still are, I don't know, they're, you know, they have are. RNA or DNA and they're, I mean, in a lot of ways, they, they are similar to existing life here. They're not completely alien, but they are somewhat alien. Well, well, one, the, the way we describe viruses is that they are not cellular life. If you Google a tree of life, of all life on Earth, you will find a, a phylogenetic tree produced by Jill Banfield's group and from a 2016 paper with the lead author of HUG, H-U-G. And in that, you will see a tree produced by ribosomal RNA sequences. And ribosomal RNA sequences are in cellular life, but are not in virus, viral life. And so viruses are excluded from that tree. So uh, I'm not sure what you want to make of that other than, well, here's the other thing. It, there, it could be the case that the origin of life is in an RNA world. And an RNA world is something very similar, if not identical to a viral world. And so right. what, we're, what we're doing by excluding viruses from the category of life is saying that when we look back at our ancestors, they're so unlike us that we're not even going to call them life forms. And that kind of shoots yourself in a foot if you're trying to understand how life got started on Earth. That's one of the one of the paradoxes or one of the, the problems with trying to understand how life got started. If you start out with a model in which you have non-life and life as a dichotomy, a black and white understanding, you are not going to understand or even be interested in the evolutionary the sequences and the steps taken, which by necessity, if you look back further and further, Life, what as we know, it will be deconstructed and you will get closer and closer to what's called non-life or chemistry or far from equilibrium chemistry. And uh, what does that mean? It means that uh, there's another way of looking at the same thing. Let's suppose in a billion years we, you know, we survive somehow and there, there are people looking back at us and they have all kinds of abilities that we couldn't even dream of. And they right. define themselves as life forms. And then they look back at us and say, those weren't life forms because they didn't have blah, 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 blah. That's essentially what we're doing by looking back at our ancestors, the virus-like critters, and saying they weren't life forms. Um, maybe the viruses, if they had brains, they could look back at their predecessors and say, oh, they weren't life forms. But the whole point is that, well, I actually, I, I'm a, a fan of quoting Nietzsche on this. And Nietzsche, to paraphrase him in the morality of, the origin of morality, I think, is the name of the book, the genealogy of morality. He says, anything that evolves cannot be defined. And for, for example, here's a, you have eyeballs and I have eyeballs. And if you look back at the, uh, the history of these eyeballs, you go back, let's say, to about 400 million years ago. And these eyeballs are kind of, uh, you wouldn't really call them eyeballs. They're kind of, they're sensitive things that they don't have lenses, et cetera. You go back another 400 million years, you have photosensitive pigments. You go back another 400 million years, and then you're saying, oh, those are not really eyeballs. And then you go back another, et cetera. So what you're doing is, Eyeballs have evolved, and you, as you go back and look at their history, they get deconstructed progressively and turn into something else or different things, but they're proto-eyeballs and proto-proto-eyeballs. The same thing is, that I think, is appropriate to how we should understand the origin of life. You look back at life and say, oh, that's not really life. And then you say, well, okay. And then you look back even further and so say, that's even less like life. So this is proto-life, proto-proto-life, et cetera. And if you get this, this gray scale going... It'll help you under, uh, help you get rid of the black and white question: Is it alive or is not it? Is it not alive? Well, what's the closest definition of life that you agree with mostly or partially? 
I don't. I, my, I'm pushing back on definitions of life because they are useless. Because particularly if you're trying to understand the origin of life, so I think the the definitions are just a silly way to. It's kind of like trying to define love. What's your best definition of love? Um, or but that's not a good example because. Oh, well, why, why, I mean, if you look at like a rock that's just sitting there, I mean, it's pretty distinct and different from just about all other living things. You know, the rock doesn't seem to do anything. There's not it just sits there. You know, it doesn't act. It doesn't it doesn't do anything. Yeah? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Right. It's also not an eyeball. Right. But I'm saying uh, I can see a hurricane. It's moving. It's doing things. It has structure. Yes, I know the rock has structure. But again, it's just not really doing anything i just wonder i'm not not saying that non-life does not exist what i'm saying is that the boundary between life and non-life particularly if you're under trying to understand the origin of life is gray is that's what i mean by the word proto-life and proto-proto-life and proto-proto-life there is a, a gradient if you will and we can and viruses are one of the prime examples of being something all over, but it's something that's not recognized as life by many, many people. And I think the point is we should not try to define life. It's trying to say, okay, when did you become an adult? I know you're an adult now and you used to be a baby. That's not, I'm not arguing that you didn't used to be a baby and I'm not arguing that you aren't an adult now. What I'm arguing is that you cannot give me a a good definition of adult that'll help me understand the transition of you from a baby to a child to slightly older person slightly older person until the person you are now and well, I you think, can put uh, bookends on it i mean so you're saying like we shouldn't look for life outside of earth or no no not, no no not, that's, that's exactly what i'm not saying i'm saying that if you want to understand the origin of life you cannot define it in a way that's linked to what we now understand as life I call this the French passport problem. Here's a little story. Imagine if you're a nationalistic French scientist and you're very, very interested in the origin of the French people and you have to define the French people to do this. And you say, well, you know, French people, what do we do? We wear berets and we uh, love uh, baguettes. Let's, uh, eh, but not every French person has a, has a beret or a baguette. So how am I going to define it? And he said, ah, I know. Every French person has a passport, a French passport. And so you define the thing whose origin you're interested in as having a French passport. And then you dig into the archaeological record and you find passports and older passports. And then comes about 1800. And then beyond that, no one has a French passport. So you say, hey, there were no French people beyond this, this time when passports were invented. There's no ground to stand on to define something that evolves. And that's the point of the the Nishi quote that says, if something has evolved, you can't define it. And uh, that's where essentially the summary of what I'm trying to say. So what does this tell you, these these insights, these, you know, resisting these specific definitions? I mean, how has this helped you in your work? Well, for one thing, it means that you take viruses more seriously as something that can be attached to the tree of life. Like I said, the tree of life, if you look it up, you will find cellular life. And it has been the the earlier, and I, and I think it's very likely that there were viral precedents of proto-proto life was, was an RNA world or a viral world. And if you take what I've just said seriously, then you will try to attempt to ba- put the base or, or root the tree of cellular life inside viral life. And there are a minority of science. I would say maybe 1% of the people who are working on the phylogeny of all life take that, uh, take what I just said seriously. But that 1% has produced some very interesting uh, rooted trees of life in which you have viruses at the bottom. And you try to figure out, well, what kind of viruses? We're we talking about RNA viruses, DNA viruses, double, double-stranded, single-stranded. There are many, many types of viruses and that's right now a current field of active research of trying to figure out the, the tree of viral life. I mean, right now, for example, with COVID, they have, they're talking about variants, right? So these are variants that have evolved over a period of, I guess, weeks to months. But if you want to make a viral tree of life, if you want to understand viral phylogeny, the DNA sequences vary very quickly. But what varies less quickly are the folding patterns. And so instead of using sequences to create a viral tree, you use families of folding patterns, which are more conserved than the sequences. I mean, is it a better way to do the most conserved type elements? 
or is it no, no, just, you know, another manifestation that, of how to characterize you know family well, well, evolution? Well, in 1976, when Carl Woese first started this whole business, he was using ribosomal RNA because ribosomal RNA is something that's very well conserved. For example, if you did, if you looked at mine and yours and uh, and the uh, the plants outside my window, the ribosomal RNA will be very very similar. But if you then compare the ribosomal RNA from a bacteria, then it becomes different enough, and that's something that really is highly conserved. But ribosomes viruses do not have ribosomes so how are you going to connect viral life to this ribosomal rna tree and the answer seems to be in the folding patterns of the proteins because they seem to be more conserved at least some of them are more conserved than the sequences of dna the sequences of the base pairs in the rna of ribosomes is there a um, a gene or a uh, you know, a particular protein or an enzyme or a biochemical pathway that we see maybe a hundred million years ago on the fossil record, then it disappears. And then we see it, you know, 5 million years ago. Forward. Yeah. Okay. Like so, right. So there you're bringing up a question about whether things can re-evolve. And one example, for example, is uh, the phylogenetic tree of amphibians. You know, um, amphibians have been around for about 350 million years. And when you do a phylogenetic tree of them, you know, frogs, for example, and there's also so Sicilians and there's another group whose name I've forgotten. But when they, you know, frogs don't really have teeth, but they used to have teeth. And when you do a phylogenetic tree of amphibians, you see one very old, older, you could say it's an older branch. They have teeth. And then you see frogs lose their teeth. And then you have hundreds, maybe even thousands of species of frogs. But then there's one type of frog that was recently found that had some teeth in it. And this was cited as an example of convergent evolution of something re-evolving. Now, this is a debate that I've been in, uh, and it's a very, it's a, let's just say it's a controversy, a very important controversy about whether things can re-evolve. And when I saw this uh, frog that has teeth that re-evolved, I would say, I would bet a large amount of money that the pathways that were used to produce these teeth in this frog are similar or are based on the original pathways that used to have produced teeth in its ancestors. In other words, we're not talking about independent evolution or convergent evolution. We're talking about deep homology in that the frog never completely got rid of the of the ability to make teeth. Rather, those teeth enzymes and the teeth genetic networks were inactivated and stayed inactivated and then were reactivated. This this is the this is a debate I call the deep homology versus convergent evolution debate. This is a very, very important one for trying to figure out what type of life we might expect elsewhere, because if something evolved independently on Earth multiple times, then that becomes a good candidate for what we should expect elsewhere. So what are some of the, um, I don't know, the earliest common characteristics of life that have been observed as far back as possible? Well, for something, for example, called the homochirality. You have enzymes, you have amino acids that are left-handed and sugars that are right-handed in your body, and all life on Earth has that. But that homochirality is something that uh, if we find, for example, life on Mars, one of the first things people will look at, biologists will look at, is what is the homochirality? If it has amino acids, are they the same chirality? Chirality is just a fancy word for handedness, like the difference between a right-handed glove and a left-handed glove. Molecules that are complex enough have a handedness, and all the amino acids in your body are left-handed, and all the sugars are right-handed. They could have been a mixture of right and left-handed, but they're not. So that's one of the basic features of life on Earth. Another is based on carbon. Uh, carbon is the scaffold for all these organic molecules of which you're using to, I'm using to speak and to think right now, and you too. And then there's based on water. So we have a polar solvent, which allows you to have covalent and ionic bonding at energies that are in a range where H2O is a liquid. So that's I was another gonna, I was going to joke and say it gave up carbon for Lent, but... Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is a joke because you, I don't know how long, you know, we talk about how long you can get around without water or food or sleep and how long you can get by without carbon is probably about the same as you get along without food. 
there's no carbon in water and carb water will keep you alive for a long time. Uh, you breathe CO2, but you, your lungs can't turn that CO2 into anything useful. You have to eat it because you're a heterotroph. And so uh, I bet you could probably go a month without, uh, without any carbon input and then you'll die. All right, so yeah, keep going. You were talking about water, the polar nature of water. But Charlie, go ahead. You were, you were continuing before I interrupted you. No, no. So, so we have carbon. So the, you asked me what are the basic features of life on Earth, and these basic features are something that are good candidates for life elsewhere. One is based on liquid water. The other is carbon for scaffolding. The other is another is homochirality of the molecules. Uh, let's see another. Do, do, do. Another would be some type of inheritance mechanism where you to allow Darwinian evolution to proceed in which you pass on pass on organization. It can be in information, but I I also think that life could have gotten started meta it's called the metabolism first. Matter of fact, people who study astrobiology are sometimes divided into two categories. Those who think that life started with metabolism, in other words, the type of thing you when you breathe and then you're you're the this is you're making ATP in your mitochondria. You're you're essentially burning uh, carbohydrates. Uh, but the plants out there, they they have a metabolism. They're they're taking photons and then they're taking they're splitting the uh, water and using CO two to create the the carbohydrates. So that's their metabolism. But notice that I didn't say you used the word information. So it's it seems that you could life could have gotten started with just organized metabolism in which you have free energy in the in the environment which is being uh tapped into uh in a way that does not involve coded information on the other hand if you're thinking about an rna world you have information and actually you, you that world is associated with something called ribozymes have you heard of ribozymes i've heard of them but it's been a while if you could restate what okay. it is Okay, so there's RNA, and RNA is an information, you know, uh, but ribozymes were discovered by Thomas Check and collaborators about 30 years ago. And this was something that was wonderful because here we have RNA that is able not only to store information, but is also able to do what proteins do, and that is they catalyze uh, reactions. So that's any, it's called ribozymes because it's ribo, it's like RNA, but it's also a zyme, like an enzyme. That's why, that's how it's, that's why it's called a ribozyme. And so it can do both things. It can contains information and, and pass it on and also do things that proteins do. So it has a metabolism. So that's why RNA is one of the prime candidates for uh, proto-life and the origin of life, because it can do both of these functions, which in us are separated. So, I mean, do you do you ascribe any belief to that, uh, you know, hurricanes are alive or, you know, like you said, convective cells in the sun? I subscribe or, belief to the idea that you shouldn't try to define life and it can't be defined for for precisely the reason that is because it is evolving. As Nietzsche said, yeah, but in that, order to in order to think, though, I mean, you need a heuristic, you need something to go off of. Or do you think well, that? Well, let, well, let's think about that. Let's think about that. Let's suppose that we're interested in the origin of life. And the, remember the French passport story. Did that archaeologist need a heuristic? No. Matter of fact, his heuristic that he invented was preventing him from understanding the origin of French people. That I think, for example, let's say, oh, RNA, life has to have DNA in it. So what you do, you go back into the fossil record and you look for things with DNA, but by definition, your DNA heuristic is going to run out because before there was DNA, there was something else. Before the something else, there was something else before that. So this is the proto, 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 proto. But anything that evolves cannot be defined. Yeah, but if you have a, let's say you do have a heuristic and you go back as far as you can and then you loosen the criteria a bit where you try another right. model. That right, exactly, exactly. That's, you loosen, that, that's exactly right. You loosen the criteria. And that's what's going to necessarily happen because you know, as scientists, that life evolved from non-life. And therefore, as you, you have to, you have to, by definition, you have to loosen the criteria as you go along until you, it's so loose that has, it includes the, the non-life from which life evolved. That's the whole process. So loosening the criteria is exactly the thing I'm talking about. So, I mean, I don't know. Have you figured out anything uh, you feel is useful about whether life, is, as anyone defines it, exists outside of the earth? Or as you said in the beginning, you haven't seen evidence of anything. Well, what I find to be most useful in approaching this problem is getting rid of the 
common heuristics and the common definitions that have been proposed. For example, the NASA favorite NASA definition is a chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. And <laughs> the problem with that is, what do you mean by, uh, and it's also got the word self in it. So what I found useful is getting rid of the word self and looking careful at what you mean by Darwinian evolution. And there you run into the problem of what is the unit of selection of Darwinian evolution. And there you run into the debate between group selection and individual selection. And then you say, what is an individual? <laughs> Here's an example. A guy named Ford Doolittle at the at Delaware's University, he talked about, he talked about, let's suppose that there are a hundred thousand planets and all of them have some kind of life. And then, and then let's say that um, as it is common in life, you all these 99% go extinct. And so 1% of the pla- of planets are left with life. And the, they've gone extinct for various reasons. You know, it was too hot, it was too cold, there was a meteor, but it, it, all kinds of things. Uh, and so the 1% is left. And then on this p- uh, planet, let's say we wait another billion years, and then 1% of those 1% still have life on them. The other have died off for various reasons. Now, you could ask the question, is, is that life, has the life on the planets that are remaining, has that life evolved or not? And some people would say, well, wait a minute, it's not in competition and it's not really been selected compared to other life forms, or, or maybe it has. In any case, it has persisted. And then you say, well, is persistence, does that, inc- does that uh, get included under Darwinian evolution? So that's a good example of how the idea of Darwinian evolution is not well-defined, or rather it is a uh, you have to loosen the criteria of what you mean by Darwinian evolution. And that's the type of, of lo- that loosening of these criteria that we think we know about is something that I find very, very helpful. And I, and I teach it, and I think it would be helpful for us to understand. For example, <laughs> here's, here's a silly example. It might be the case that there were, I've been trying to convince people who said, I said, I'll give you a billion dollars. How will you spend it to find, to help find, to help answer the question, are we alone? And they'll say, oh, they'll build a, a radio telescope or to look for intelligent aliens or they'll build spacecraft or bigger telescopes and, and some optical telescopes. And I said, would you spend any money on electron microscopes looking for nano aliens? And uh, they say, well, do you mean nano aliens? That, that can't exist. Oh, I, <laughs> and Occasionally, you'll find somebody who says, "Sure, sure, look for nano aliens." Uh, but I, it could be the it could be the case that we haven't detected aliens because we haven't understood what alien life would be or what life is in general. So that that's uh, I think a possibility. That's one possibility to explain what what's known as the Fermi paradox. Are you familiar with that? Uh, I've heard the name, but uh, I, you know, I don't remember. Yeah, the, the, the Fermi paradox is: Hey, there's billions and billions and billions of stars, and now we know that almost every star will have some type of planetary system, and there, therefore there are. Oh, billions. there has to be life. Right? Yeah, there has to be. Not only has to be life, there has to be life uh, that has is that has become intelligent, and therefore would have already colonized the galaxy. Therefore, we should already seen them. And so Fermi said, "Where are they? They should be here, based on those assumptions." Uh, and one way to uh, to resolve the to answer to find a solution to Fermi's paradox is to say that life is around us, but we don't recognize it. It's a little bit like the viral thing, you know. <laughs> I, have, I have a quick question here. Um, so the Earth, I guess, is you know four and a half billion years old, approximately uh, maybe five. Are there any Earth-like planets that are far older? You know, that are eight, nine, ten billion years old. Like, what is the yes. oldest Earth-like planet that orbits a star? Yes, yes. And matter of fact, I, in, in 2001, I wrote a paper with exactly that question. And the answer is that the Earth is, uh, is relatively young and about two thirds of the Earths in the universe are older than the Earth. And the average is about two billion years older than Earth. So the universe is filled with Earths. And when I mean, when I say the word Earth, I mean, rocky planets of approximately the same size with wet with water on their surfaces. So the earth, the, the universe is filled with such things and the average age of them is 2 billion years older than our earth. That's simply the fact that the universe is 13.8 billion years. The sun is four and a half billion years old. And so there was a period of about nine or 8 billion years in which uh, you could have 
lots uh, which had lots of stars and they had planets around them and some of them are earth-like and whatever happened there we don't know yet but we're we might be about to find out so if we assume the pace of of evolution happened on these other earth-type planets you know at the same rate is that why it's it's very likely that there should have been intelligent life or no 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 i uh, so so that is one assumption that many people make i've been pushing back on that assumption or throwing cold water on that assumption for a long time because i don't think that we have any evidence to suggest that what you call the pace of evolution is something that we can uh, what happened on earth will happen elsewhere i I don't think that's a very good assumption at all oh i mean what other factors would uh would it inform the Fermi paradox though? Why would, uh, why would he say, oh, it's a certainty that there were, I don't know if he said it's a certainty, but why would it be a high likelihood or maybe a certainty that there would be life on, on other planets because there's been quote unquote enough time or what are the reasons? Well, um, when pressed, I would say that I'm, I'm very uncertain. I, I would say that there might be, well, for one thing, we don't know what life is. <laughs> so, so for example, if we found, um, if, um, if uh, one planet was just viruses, just lots and lots of RNA viruses, would we say that we've detected life there or not? Uh, most, but the, the Fermi paradox, probably the, what I consider to be the most dubious assumption is that life will evolve into human-like intelligent life that will produce technology and radio telescopes and spaceships. That's the part that I think is the, the biggest, uh, I call this the fallacy of the planet of the apes. The fallacy of the Planet of the Apes is, you've seen the movie Planet of the Apes? Yeah, that and a few remakes, yeah. Right, and so there, the humans have World War III, or they marginalize themselves in some way, and they get start, they lose the ability to speak, and they live in the gutters. And so, essentially, humans abandon what we consider to be the intelligence niche, and when that becomes empty, the chimps, the gorillas and the orangutans then evolve into the intelligence niche and take over and start acting like humans. That's basically the conceit of the film. And everybody thinks it's a very, it's a very subtle and appealing uh, idea, but I think it's completely wrong. And the reason why I think it's completely wrong is the data we have from evolutionary biology. And that data is the following. The Earth is not just one experiment in biological evolution for landlocked creatures. It's been many experiments. Um, for example, the one experiment is called Australia. Another experiment is called New Zealand. Another is called Madagascar. Another is called South America. For periods of 20, 50, 100 million years, these were isolated continents, not in contact with the other continents as far as landlocked vertebrates were concerned. And then you can say, if there is such an intelligence niche, and it is useful to have big brains, then these, then big brain creatures, or, or something should have evolved into this intelligence niche. The problem is that we have no evidence at all for during this, these 20 to 50 to 100 million years of independent evolution, do we see any evidence of evolution towards what you might call an intelligence niche. So that I take as the best evidence we have for evaluating whether such a niche exists or not. I should what point out that towards an intelligence niche, like I, I don't know, I guess birds and other intelligence animals developed on all these continents. But. Yeah, well, the, well, actually, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about heads. Now, heads are very common. We have heads, and birds have heads, and fish have heads. But the question is, is is heads something that we should expect elsewhere? Should we expect aliens to have heads? Well. On Earth, all the creatures with heads evolved from a single species. In other words, it has a monophyletic origin and that everything that has a head today came from a time when there was only one species on Earth with a head. And so that how do makes, we know that? I, I don't know. How do we know, that, we know because, that for sure? Because we create these phylogenetic trees. For example, think of two critters with a but, head. But you, you yourself challenge assumptions at every turn. So, I mean, who's to say the phylogenetic trees are accurate at all? Oh, well, I have a lot of faith in phylogenetic trees. Uh, we're, as a matter of fact, they're getting better and better every all the time because the uh, sequences are just piling up because the technology for sequencing RNA and DNA. Now, I, almost every week in nature, you'll say, hey, we now have the, phylo- the, the full sequence of the orangutan, or we now have the full sequence of a particular species of gibbon, or now this turtle, etc. So that's going really fast. And when each time there's a new species, 
that new species can be added to the phylogenetic trees. So the question is, now, matter of fact, you, you are now putting into doubt something that I don't think any biologist on earth would put into doubt. And that is that, for example, think of two things with a head, let's say a person and a fly, or I don't know, a dog and a dolphin or a dinosaur. And think of any two species of what about uh, a slime mold. Well, slime molds don't really have heads, do they? Except you could say, well, wait, maybe, maybe they do because slime molds, they're individual cells, which then come together into a slug. The slug has a directionality to it. It moves kind of like saying, it's like a worm a little bit. And you can say, do, does a worm have a head? Well, then you say, well, maybe. Well, they have temporary, right? maybe a temporary head or like an amoeba, but they don't really right. have a persistent one. Right, right. Okay, so so if you want to define, if you want to say that worms and slugs, like a slime mold, has a head, then it's easy enough. All we have to do is then say, okay, well, the slime mold and us and everything with a, what we call a normal head also had a common ancestor that was a single species, and that lived about about a billion years ago. Now, if you want to even undefine heads and say, okay, let's let's make heads even broader, like maybe you would want to say that coral have a head, or maybe. A, Maybe all metazoans, uh, maybe a, a sponge has a head. If you, if, you, if you loosen up the criteria for what you mean by head, but no matter how loose you make it, you will still come to one species that is the origin of all critters with heads today. And that means that heads is a species-specific characteristic. And a species-specific characteristic is something you should not look for on another planet. You should, don't go yeah. looking for sulfur-crested cockatoos or or let's say forest elephants. That's, that would be silly to go look for s- single species on another planet because they're so quirky and individualistic. What do you mean it's a species-based uh, characteristic? Species-specific. I mean, common to... That, species that means... But a that head means itself, one, the, the platonic form of a head, is, is shared by countless species. You know? I know that, but all of those countless species, if you go back in a time machine, let's go back in a time machine... And we're going to go find out the origins of heads. And when we do that, we find that the origins of heads is one species. And that means it's species specific. And that means it's quirky. And that's something we should not expect elsewhere. I don't know. I mean, the characteristic has been preserved over a long time and over countless numbers of species. So it's a pretty... Heads are... Right. You're saying heads are successful. That's absolutely true. It's a pretty hard-boiled thing, yeah. It's, it's hard-boiled because the one species that had a head evolved into all the ones that we see around us today. Right, but in the absence of any other life, and I know, you know it depends how you define it, but still, we really haven't found anything similar. And again, another, I know you can define that too, but... Well, what, another way to test this model is to look at the phylogenetic tree of all life. And I recommend that you have a look at it in the, in the HUG 2016 and you ask yourself, okay, heads, heads are something. Should we expect aliens to have heads? Well, then you look at the tree of life and ask yourself the question, how many times have heads evolved independently on Earth? And the answer is only one. It hasn't evolved independently, just except for one. And when something has evolved only once, it's called a a species. I call that species-specific. That's a little bit problematic because species is something that depends on sexual (laughs) reproduction, but I won't go into that particular problem and i I don't know if we know that i mean how many times has life started on earth i don't think anyone knows that either (laughs) no one was around then you know to really know i mean you could say there's a common ancestor but they could have been several common ancestors and or they were several divergent ones clumped into that time period that's right that's right that you're exactly right on that matter of fact paul davies and i wrote a paper on that about uh, about 10 years ago and that is and the question we're posing is could life have evolved multiple times on earth i think that's fully that's pro that's plausible very plausible but the idea of heads evolving multiple times is not because we have the genetic evidence for that okay uh, matter of fact we were trying in our paper we we're trying to say hey let's can we get biologists who are lo- doing metagenomics to try to f- if there is a second form of life on earth that has an independent origin could we try to find it and uh, there are multiple ways we made several suggestions about how to possibly find that Okay, so I don't know. Like, what what insights do you feel like you have into whether there's a you know life on other planets or other parts of this the, of the universe? I mean, like, what would you look for? What's your filter tell you to look for? Best guess. Well, the first thing is to try not to be too anal about what you think life is. 
The second is that we've made incredible progress in, in the last 20 years of finding planets elsewhere. As a matter of fact, we, we weren't sure that there were other Earths. And now, if you define Earth as a rocky planet of about the Earth's with an atmosphere and water on its surface, I'm convinced that there are just billions and billions of them. There are probably as many such planets as there are stars in the universe. And that would be 10 to the 22 in the observable universe and 10 to the 11 in our galaxy alone. So that's all, those are big numbers. So there's lots of Earth-like planets. On the other hand, I, I, there's a caveat that should go with that. And that is uh, just before the Voyager, the, the, before the 1970s, when we didn't know much about the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, we thought, oh, there's are just small bodies. They're all going to look like our moon. And then when we looked at them, they were just a complex, really, every moon was different from the others. And so when we don't know much about a type of thing in the universe, we say essentially our default is, oh, they're all alike. And then we find out all the interesting quirks and peculiarities of the, the moons during the Voyager 1 and 2, because we had closer looks at them and said, oh, that doesn't look at all like Io, doesn't look at all like Ganymede, and Ganymede doesn't look at all like Callisto, and look at Titan, Titan has, a, in other words, it just it got more and more complex. I think we, we are, when I say the word Earth-like planet, I, I, that suggests that they're all going to be similar to Earth in ways that we'd be happy with, but I suspect that Earth-like planet with a rocky planet, about the Earth's size, with an atmosphere, with uh, with water on the surface, there are going to be so many different varieties of that. That uh, when we find when we start getting finding out more of the details, that we will be surprised about that variety. Now that's important because we don't know how much variety is tolerable if you want to start life on that planet, and that's yeah. something that's really really unknown. And so just because we're going to have a wet rocky planet. I mean, some scientists like Christian Dedu think, oh, if you have a wet, rocky planet, you're going to have life on it. I'm less sanguine than that. I, I plead ignorance about that. But uh, I, I, am, I am thinking that, yeah, life will get started. Some kind of life will get started on these wet, rocky planets in, a, in a, some significant fraction of them. But what happens after that and what life means is something that I'm much less confident about. Sorry, I, I lost you for a second, Charlie. Uh, can you, would you mind repeating the last 10 seconds? I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. So what, what, so I'm confident that there'll be lots of what are, are normally called earth, wet, rocky planets or earth-like planets, but I'm, and I think, uh, I think that it could be the case that some form of life could emerge on these planets, but I don't know what that life, what kind of life we're talking about. And so I'm, uh, but I'm open to the, the, to calling whatever evolves their life. What I'm much less uh, confident about is that it will evolve in any way that would resemble human beings. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty convinced that there would be that that process to produce a human being, and a, or what I mean by that is, a, I guess, technological civilization to produce rockets and and uh, and radio telescopes. That's something that I think we have evidence for will not evolve elsewhere. I sometimes compare it to the evolution of English. We should not try to find English-speaking aliens. And everybody says, well, that's kind of silly because English is so quirky. You shouldn't expect that language to be spoken elsewhere. And I think that's right. It's so quirky. But who's to say that human-like life in life that would make uh, radio telescopes isn't as quirky or even possibly more quirky than the particular language that you and I are speaking right now? If you survey what's considered to be life on Earth, at least you get more of a, you know, a variation, a wider base to then search other planets and other places. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's part of what astrobiologists do. We try to find how broad is this category that we are calling life. Uh, that's what the whole extremophile research is about, trying to find what's the highest temperature that life can live under. Uh, for example, and we found life that can live up to 122 Celsius above the boiling point of water. But But that's kind of crazy because... Or it's interesting because the water does not boil at 122 when it's under pressure. And this hot water that life is living in is under pressure. It's at the hydrothermal vents. So one of the things we're trying to do is try to figure out how life got started on this planet. And their two leading candidates are one is the hydrothermal vents. And the other is in uh, essentially hot, hot, uh, mag hot springs like the Yellowstone, for example, where you have hot water coming out of the earth and you have 
essentially redox reactions that are could be used as the to drive life, the, to drive the metabolism of life. So, I mean, what is the nearest planet or asteroid or moon or you know, celestial body that we can get to or maybe get to in the near future that has the highest likelihood of having something on it that could be life? Well, I, my particular, uh, I would say Mars, and that would be the, the Mars, Martian life under the surface where there is liquid water. So I think when we start drilling on Mars, we if there is extant life on Mars, I think it's likely that we will find it by drilling down one meter, 10 meters, 100 meters, um, and really looking carefully at what comes up. Um, there might be life there. I'm not quite sure. I Another, probably more likely, is that there used to be life on Mars. Uh, matter of fact, some of my colleagues think that we are Martians, or we, we evolved first on Mars, and then because there was so much bombardment in the first half a billion years during the formation of the solar system, that rocks from Mars landed on Earth, and then they said, hey, this place is nice too. And then we evolved into what we now see around us. So that's in our solar system. Uh, as to if, if the hydrothermal vent scenario for the origin of life on earth is correct or gets more evidence for it, then we would then be, we would then be more likely to think that life could evolve on these icy moons of Jupiter, like Enceladus, for example, or Europa, because there we know there are rocky surfaces and uh, there are uh, liquid water on top of those rocky surfaces. So if that's all you need, if that's all that life needed to originate on earth, then maybe it could evolve there as well. That's something that's likely Outside of our solar system, there are just billions and billions and billions of planets, and they also will have moons, and uh, they also will have amino acids falling from the sky when they're first forming, just like has occurred on Earth, because we know this from looking at the carbonaceous chondrites, and there are 80 types of amino acids on these things, and I'm convinced, and I think any reasonable planetary scientist is convinced that those similar types of carbonaceous chondrites with amino acids in them are falling onto these these new planets everywhere in the universe oh okay so life could you know i guess be seeded from all kinds of other places oh yeah well sure sure well there's nothing as far as we know from our understanding of how life got started on earth there is nothing special about earth that you know no unique ingredient to the life on earth you and i are made out of the most abundant elements in the universe and we know that by because we can sample the most abundant elements of the universe and we know that the star the sun is also representative of the other stars in the universe it's a good representative of them and uh, therefore if that's the case then the other stars and the with their other planets are representative of of the earth they're similar to what the earth was and that tells you well there's nothing special about happening on earth Okay. I don't know. What, what projects are you working on? Is it in this vein? Is it in other veins that you know, like you're most excited about right now? Uh, well, as a cosmologist, I'm working on something. <laughs> we're working on the entropy of the universe uh, and trying to push this idea of far from equilibrium dissipative systems as a way to describe, as a, as a more physics-based uh, description of life. That's one project we're working on. We're also trying to use the the increasingly detailed phylogenetic trees of life to figure out if there were earlier extinctions. You know, when you may have heard that there were five great extinctions, but those extinctions are isolated to the post-Cambrian. The Cambrian was about 542 million years ago, but life has been around for about 4 billion years. And so I'm sure there are many, many episodes of extinction of large extinction that occurred before that, but we don't know about them because we don't have the fossil evidence. But there may be gen- uh, phylogenetic evidence for uh, big uh, extinction events, and that's one of the things we're doing as well. I should mention also that also Paul Davies and I are working on a model, a new model of cancer we call the atavistic model that we're trying to develop into something useful. Oh, tell me about that briefly, if you would. Okay, well, do you know what an, an atavism? An atavism is something that uh, Darwin called a reversion or, or sometimes called a genetic throwback. Sometimes people are born with uh, supernumerary nipples, the extra nipples. It's like, in the, the, it's like the brother of an anachronism. 
anachronism. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, anachronism is a, is usually used in the cultural context, not in the biological context. In the biological context, it's an atavism. So some, you know, that horses like us used to have five digits, and then they lost two, and they had three, and then they lost two, and they two more, and they had just one left. And when you have an atavistic horse like Julius Caesar's and uh, and I think Alexander the Great, they were very proud of their horses because they had atavistically three toes, not just one toe. Really? And so huh. this, is, this is called a genetic throwback. And, and the way that happens is during development, the horse fetus starts out saying, hey, I got to make five. And then the during the evolution of or the ontogeny, the development of a horse, there was there were enzymes that shut down the production of the two of them. And then later on, they shut down the production of the other two. And then in the full adult horse only has one left. But if something goes wrong with those shutting downs, then the more original, the earlier things pop up. Sometimes, for example, they well, it, may, it may not be go wrong. They just maybe, uh, you know, local micro microenvironment cues that are different. That causes, well, I don't know if I characterize it as going I, wrong. Right. When I say the word going wrong, I mean going uh, different from the vast well, the population into which it was born. Right. Um, uh, so you could say that there's nothing wrong with three-toed horses, you know, or you could say something has gone wrong. I, okay, so let me try to rephrase that. Something has gone differently in the development yeah, of a you horse. You have taught me well, oh, Master. So something has gone differently, and it has produced a three-toed horse. Sometimes you have people with look like gill slits are on underneath their chin. Sometimes you have supernumerary nipples. Sometimes people are really hairy. These are all things that are characteristic or more characteristic of our ancestors than it is of modern populations. So that's a, that's what an atavism is. So now the question, what we're saying is that cancer is an atavism in the sense that the cells in your body that are not supposed to reproduce in other words, you're made out of about 50 trillion cells, and most of those cells have been taught and have evolved to not reproduce unless they are needed. For example, you have skin cells, and if you get a cut in your skin cells, then there's, there's a, a signaling that says, okay, the cells around this cut are now going to start to duplicate themselves. And then when the skin heals up, then they, this signal turns off and they stop. Now, the when in cancer is essentially you could characterize it as unregulated uh, reproduction. It's mitosis going on and it's unregulated. And so it does not get the message that you're supposed to stop. Well, in order to evolve a multicellular organism, the cells had to learn to stop reproducing. But that was something that's true only in the last billion years or so. Before that, the cells are saying, hey, I'm just going to reproduce, divide, 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 divide. So there was unregulated proliferation of cancer cells is an ancestral trait is what we're saying. And so cancer in that sense is an ancestral trait, but there are many, many other features of cancer that indicate the same thing. For example, there didn't used to be oxygen on earth now. And so our cells had to, had to live without oxygen. Now in your body right now, if you do a long race and you get really tired and your cells don't have enough oxygen, they start performing a type of metabolism that is, doesn't need oxygen. It still makes ATP that you need, but it doesn't require oxygen. That ability was something that evolved a long, long time ago before there was oxygen. Now, okay. however, in normal cells, when oxygen then comes back, they start switching their metabolism back to the 36 ATP producing uh, metabolism that's using oxygen. Now, cancer cells have reverted to a metabolism that even in the presence of oxygen, they do not use the oxygen. It's, this is called the Warburg effect. This was a Hitler's favorite cancer doctor is named Warburg, Otto Warburg. He was the Germany's best uh, oncologist in the pre-World War II. And anyway, so he wrote a paper in 1956, if you're interested, called the Warburg effect. And this is cancer cells do not know how to use oxygen when it is available. And they revert to permanently to, uh, to, this, uh, to a earlier metabolism, an atavistic metabolism. And so there are dozens and dozens of examples of the hallmarks of cancer, which are consistent with this atavistic interpretation but it, because doctors don't study evolution, and particularly not evolution on billions of year timescale, they are uh, 
the, it's not part of the research program of people who are trying to kill cancer cells. And we're trying to make it part of them. Well, very good. But Charlie, I know we can talk about a lot more stuff, but uh, you know, we, we've been on for a while. Um, what's the mm-hmm. best way for people to find out more about your, uh, you know, your myriad interests? Where can they go? Well, just Google my name, Charlie Lineweaver, Charlie, L-E-Y, not L-I-E, Charlie Lineweaver. Just Google my name and you can see uh, either some publications or my website. And on my website, I keep a, a pretty good list of the PDF files of the publications I've done. Also, uh, if you go onto YouTube, I've, I've, I guess I've had quite a few lectures that have been recorded and put on YouTube. And that's another way to see what I do and what I, how I think and who I am. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a very interesting call. I appreciate it. Okay. Okay. I thank you for asking so many good questions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.